If you don't understand Genesis, it's going to be hard for you to understand the whole Bible. And Genesis 1 through 11 is the first chapter of, of that story, the first chapter, the first piece of that cornerstone. And as I've studied and, and come to better understand the Bible and how it all fits together, I'm continually amazed how foundational Genesis 1 through 11 is. It, it just pops up everywhere in Scripture. I'm more and more persuaded that every theme in Scripture, major or minor, has its opening notes in Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 begins the threads that are traced through the whole Bible. And we're going to see that as we move forward. So in, by the time you get through Genesis 1 through 11, you essentially have all the main characters, the plot, the problems, and the promises that the rest of the Bible unpacks, explores, expands on. So think about Genesis. Genesis is the first book in a five-book volume written by Moses that we call the Torah, the book of the law. So Genesis through Deuteronomy is one unit, basically broken into five sections. And it's written by Moses, and it was written to, by Moses to the people of Israel during the time of their slavery in Egypt their deliverance from Egypt, and then their wilderness wanderings. So basically from the beginning of Moses' ministry, when he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, till they're on the doorstep of the promised land and Moses dies. That's, that's when Moses gave Israel these first five books of, of the Bible. In Exodus, God reveals himself to Moses. Remember that story at the, at the burning bush? When, when God reveals himself to Moses as the God of Israel's fathers, he says, I am the God of your fathers, I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis gives us the background to that story. When, when God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we read about that in Genesis. So God God gives that story to Moses so that Moses can tell that story to the Israelites so that they can know who they are, where they, came, where they come from, what, what's going on. So Genesis gives us that background and it, and it shows us the eternal creator God who revealed himself to and entered into covenant with a man named Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel. All of that is introduced. All of that is unpacked for us in Genesis. And, and so we come to our text this morning, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. This is Moses' opening statement of his account of this creator God who enters into covenant with a specific people. It's the launching point for all of chapter 1, all of Genesis 1 through 11, all of Scripture. So it's, it's a really important passage. We need to understand it so that we can move forward rightly. Just like if you don't lay the cornerstone well, the building's not going to stand up. You're going to be in trouble as you move forward. So as we're seeking to understand Scripture, let's take time to understand the beginning of Scripture. When, when Moses 
gives us verses one through three, Genesis one, one through three, he is introducing, he, he is making a big statement that he wants to unpack. Think of the, the preamble to the Constitution. It begins, we the people. And just right there, those three words declare that the United States will be a representative democracy. Who has the power in the United States? We, the people, have the power, right? The, those first words of the Constitution are weighty. You need to know those words to understand everything that comes next. And it's the same with Scripture. When Moses says, in the beginning, God, he's declaring that the Bible and all of reality is from about and for God. God is the cornerstone of biblical reality. God is the main character of the universe and of the Bible. God pre-exists everything else that exists. God creates everything else that exists. And God reveals himself as the creator. That's what, that's what Moses is declaring in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Fast forward to Exodus 3, that story of the burning bush. When Moses encounters God in the burning bush and God calls himself the God of Israel's fathers, Moses asks God, what, what should he tell Israel when they ask of this God, what is his name? When I go to the people and say, God sent me, and they say, what's his name, what do I, what do I say? God tells Moses, we know this, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That, that's where we get the term Yahweh, the, God's proper name, Yahweh, I am. Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and Exodus 3 answer the question, who is God? And the answer is, God is who he is. God exists. God is eternal. And God is whoever, whatever, and however he wants to be. Theologians have referred to this divine freedom or independence that, that God has, this freedom or independence. The, the theological term is God's aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. And that's from the Latin, ase, um, of himself. Where does God come from? God comes from God. Who is God beholden to? God is beholden to God. Who tells God what to do? God does. God is not tied to anyone or anything. God is, and he is who he is, and he does what he does, whether we know it or not, and whether we like it or not. In the beginning, God tells us that he is eternal and infinite and all-powerful. God does not exist within and is not subject to a system or a reality. God does not work within constraints. He is, 
and everything else is because he created it. There is a, there is a prominent gap between cre- creator and creature or creation. There is God, there's a gap, and there's everything else. God did not have to create. He was God before he created. We see that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which implies, not not implies, declares that before God created the heavens and the earth, God, God was there. He existed. I can remember a couple years ago when Tommy was maybe three or four years old, he said, Dad, who made God? I thought, that's the right question. And the answer is no one. No one made God. God is. God has always been. In, in, in Revelation, he reveals himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has always been and he always will be. He didn't have to create. He was God before he created. He was complete and perfect and sufficient in himself for all of eternity. God did not create because he was lonely, because he had a lack, because he was bored, because he needed anything. God was, and God was perfect. So he didn't have to create. And in creation, he didn't have to create you or me or us. He didn't have to create humanity. And in creating us, he didn't have to reveal himself to us. He could have created the world, and then he could have created humans, and then he could have left us alone, on our own. He's not beholden to us. We don't, he doesn't owe us anything. He did all of it in his divine freedom, in his good pleasure, and in his infinite wisdom. All of it. Many theologians, many commentators have pointed out that this framing of God, the way that Moses declares who God is, the way that God declares himself through the inspired words of Moses, many have pointed out that this framing stands against every other framework of reality. There are other ways to look at how the world is. We will call our worldview biblical monotheism, right? It comes from the Bible. We're told who God is from the Bible, and in the Bible we're told that God is God, and there's only one of him, right? Biblical monotheism. And Wayne Grudem, the theologian, he describes this view this way, that creation is distinct from God there's that creator, creator, creature, creator, creation gap. Creation is distinct from God, yet always dependent on God. And, and Grudem is getting after here the idea, the, the reality that God is transcendent, bigger than everything, but he's also imminent. He's near. He's, he relates to us. He reveals himself to us. So this framework of reality that we see in Genesis 1 in the beginning, God, biblical monotheism, this framework, it refutes 
all the other frameworks, stands against them, shoots them down. So it refutes atheism or materialism, right? Atheism, no God. There is no God. Only what we see exists. If I can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, hear it, it doesn't exist, right? So I only know what I experience. And this says no. I can't see God, therefore he doesn't exist. Only what we experience with our senses is real. Rene Descartes has this famous saying, I think, therefore I am, right? That philosophy says, I am the center of my reality. I am the starting point of reason and logic. Descartes is seeking, he's seeking to ground reality in his own experience of it. Descartes says, how can I know anything? Well, the starting point of knowing something is that I exist. I know that I exist because I'm a thinking being, right? So based on my status as a thinking being, that's how I know the world. I exist, I have thoughts, I experience sensations, so I will seek to understand the world through those experiences. That's materialism. And Moses says, no. The starting point of reality is God, that God exists, that God made you, and God reveals himself to you. That's how you know what's true, what's real. Polytheism says God is one of many. There are many gods. And these, these gods have limited power over limited spheres. And so the chaos of the world all the good, bad, and the ugly that we experience in reality is because there are many gods and they have limited power over limited spheres. This is the god of the air, this is the god of water, this is the god of this region, this is the god of that region. And sometimes they work together, but often they fight with one another. And so the story of reality is the story of these gods fighting with one another. Biblical monotheism says no. There's one God and he created everything. Biblical monotheism also refutes pantheism. The idea that there is no distinction between the creator and creation. This is essentially Star Wars, right? The force, right? The force is in everything. We're all part of the force. We flow from the force. The, floor, the force flows through us, right? This cosmic, impersonal reality that we relate to and we can kind of bend it to our will or be bent by it. But God's just in everything. So we are part of God. The, the universe is part of God. It's all mixed together. No, there is a God and there is his creation. And he's Lord over it. He stands apart from it. He rules over it. He owns it. Dualism says that there's God, good, and there's evil, Satan, and they're fighting with one another. They're, it's kind of that yin and yang, this, this, this wrestling, this tug of war between good and evil, right? And so God has to wrestle the world into order. The world is this big chaotic mess, and he's doing his best Sometimes he's winning, sometimes he's losing. Moses says, no, in the beginning, God. 
He has no rival. And then finally, there's deism, which says that God is distinct from his creation. He created the universe and then he walked away from it. He has no dealings with it. He, he, he built the clock, wound it up, and walked away. He's separate from his creation. He's disengaged from his creation, uninvolved in it. He's unknown and unknowable. There may be a God, there may be a divine being, but how could we possibly know him? Moses says, because he talks to you, because he reveals himself to you, because he is aware, aware and he is involved in your reality. So over against all of these views, all these different ways of putting the world together, making sense of, of reality, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, is the divine self-revelation. God declares that he is eternal. He stands alone as God over everything else. He's unhindered, unrivaled. He created the world out of nothing, and he revealed himself to his human creation, to his creatures. He reveals himself to us in a way that we can understand him and know him and relate to him. That's the cornerstone that reality is built on for the believer. And think, think about that context of Moses' first readers. Moses is writing to these Israelites who are either in slavery or just have come out of slavery. Moses wasn't starting, for, Moses wasn't starting from scratch with them when it comes to their knowledge of God. These were, these were Israelites who had this oral history of the world. They, they knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that those stories had been passed down to them. This, so Moses is telling them that this eternal, all-powerful, one-of-one God over creation has revealed himself to them as the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and as their God who is bringing them out of slavery into the promised land. And that means that they know him this Genesis 1, 1 through 3 God, they know him as the God who enters into covenant with people. And not just people, but sinful people. People who rebel. Genesis 1 reveals God as their maker, but they also know him to be their redeemer. This God who stands above all creation, this God who is eternal, this God who has always been, this God who dwells in unapproachable light makes a covenant with people who sin. That's what they know him as. And that's the same context for us as New Covenant readers. We know that this one true eternal creator God exists in three persons. You, you couldn't build a doctrine of the Trinity on these verses, but you do see those first little notes of it. Look again at verses one through three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So we see right away, as new covenant believers, as people who are reading the beginning with the end in mind, 
We know where the story's going. We see here those first little notes. You have God, who is one, but exists in three persons. You have God the Father, creating, and in the creation, the Spirit of God is there. God's Spirit is present and active in creation, hovering over the face of the water. So that, that, this picture of like an eagle that's hovering and about to jump into action. So you have God the Father creating, you have the Spirit of God in the midst of creation, like a breath. That word spirit is breath. God's breathing out his creation and then God speaks. And John reveals this as the Son. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word of God is the Son of God. So we see just this, again, you can't build an entire doctrine of the Trinity here, but looking at the beginning in light of the end, we see that this is the God who exists in three persons. And where Moses' first readers knew this God as the God who entered into covenant to save them from slavery in Egypt and bring them to the promised land, we know him as the God who enters into covenant and himself comes into his creation by becoming the God-man, Jesus Christ, giving his very life so that he could redeem us from our slavery to sin and the curse of death and bring us into eternal life with him in his presence. So through faith in Christ, the God of the universe, our gracious maker and sustainer, becomes our gracious redeemer. That's the God that we're introduced to here in Genesis 1. So what do we do with all of this? Genesis 1, 1 through 3, it declares this is the foundation of reality. This is who God is. This is how all things came to be. This is how he has revealed himself. So what do we do with that? What are the implications of that? Two quick implications. And actually, I, I saw this this morning. So I, I came in this morning to put finishing touches on my, on my sermon, and I needed to go home. Most of you know I live one block that way, so I walked to church. And I'm here, and it's 8.15, and at 8.30, I had to go back home so that Christina could come and practice to lead worship. And so it's 8.15, and all of a sudden, I look out the window. It's dark, right? It's, this cloud is coming in, and I'm thinking, I better go home now so I don't get wet, right? So what that helped me to see, I, I'd been pondering this for the last few days, and this kind of put a, a stamp on it. The first implication of this for us is this helps us to understand what the Bible means when it talks about the fear of the Lord. All over Scripture, we see that we should fear God. What does that mean? A proper understanding of God leads to a proper uh, response to God. The fear of the Lord means that I refuse to de-God God. I, I believe in him. I believe he is who he says he is. I believe that he has done what he said he has done. I believe that he will do what he says he will do. Genesis 39, real quick, um, when Joseph is in Potiphar's house, he's a slave to Potiphar, this, this leader in Egypt, and Potiphar's wife 
seeks to seduce Joseph. Says, come, lay with me, right? And, and Mo, uh, excuse me, jo- Joseph resists her. Says, no, I'm not gonna do that. He says in verse 39, verse eight, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. So he's saying, I'm not gonna... I'm not going to commit adultery with you because that would dishonor my master. But then he says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph fears God. He says, God really is God, and I don't want to dishonor him. This thing that you're asking me to do would minimize God, ignore God, rebel against God, take God's word lightly, and I'm not going to do it because God really is God. And that, that was me this morning with this, this rainstorm, right? I could have said, I don't care about that cloud. It's not a big deal. I'm going to ignore it. The cloud doesn't care, right? The cloud doesn't care if I acknowledge it or not. But if I, if I don't acknowledge it, I'm going to be soaked, right? And so the fear of the Lord says, God is real. He is who he says he is. And so I'm going to pay attention to him. I'm not going to ignore him. I'm not going to minimize him. I'm going to live and act in such a way that acknowledges and honors God as God. And I will seek to not do or say things that minimize or ignore or reject him. I see God right there and I'm going to take him seriously. So this is the God that we're called to take seriously. The God who is, whether we know it or not, whether we care or not. And we say, he's right there and I'm going to pay attention to him. That's the fear of of the Lord. But there's also the goodness of the Lord, the nearness of God, the grace of God. we, We saw that in the passage that Gina just read from Philippians 4, 4 through 9. We, that's a famous passage, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, right? We hear that, that, that rattles around in our head. Don't be anxious about anything. Okay, but why? Why should I not be anxious? Because, verse five, the Lord is at hand. God is near. And it's this God, this big, strong, powerful, glorious, good God, he's the one who's near to you. Why should we not be anxious? Because God is near and he cares and he loves me through Christ. He's revealed himself to me through his word. He is inclined toward me. So I don't have to be anxious. I can cast my anxieties on him and he's big enough to carry them. And so that can make me into a reasonable person. I don't have to be anxious. I can give him all of my anxieties. And when I do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Moses shows us here, God is God is big and glorious and powerful and eternal, unmovable, unhindered. He's your maker and he's also your redeemer. 
He's also, he's also the one who draws near to you. He's also the one who enters into covenant with you, wants to know you, and wants you to know him and rest in him. Let's pray.